Good evening to you. Good evening again. So I hope you in, enjoyed one of those days that reminds us to stop complaining. This is why we live here. Because you were forgetting, right? You were like, I can't, why is it that we live here? Ah, but this is it. This is it. Well, uh, greetings from uh, Nicaragua, from uh, Pastor Bob. And uh, he just sent me word about an hour ago to uh, say hello to you all. The team's doing well. It's very hot. I think he's very disappointed in his, one of his favorite websites that, you know, I won't give its name, but it tells you the weather, and it's one of those dot-coms anyway. It's not very accurate, it turns out. It was 110, not 99, like he said last week, so it's hot, but he loves that stuff. So anyway, hello from, uh, from the team. They're all doing well, the work is going well, and so keep praying for them. In fact, uh, Pastor Bob is teaching right now down there, but since you can't hear him, I'm here uh, for you all. And, uh, but he said he'd be praying for us, and so it seems like we should do the same. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for um, our team down in Nicaragua. We thank you for the answered prayer, the safe travel, that work is going well, that everyone is healthy and and we just praise you for those things. We, we pray that uh, you would continue to bless their work. And we pray for Pastor Bob tonight that, uh, that uh, languages would not get in the way. And we understand that uh, you're bigger than that. You have been overcoming that for thousands of years. And so again tonight, that as he teaches, you would encourage your people that uh, maybe some would uh, meet you for the very first time and come to Christ. And uh, we just pray great blessings in Nicaragua. Thank you that you are there. Thank you that you are here as well and that your word is powerful in our lives. Uh, teach us tonight, Father, and, and uh, open our hearts, our minds to uh, what it is that you would have for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was just a young lad when I first uh, kind of first paid attention to a presidential election. And uh, so I opened up a newspaper and there was this full page ad that uh, a bunch of people had taken out to, um, to kind of give these warnings about if this one candidate was elected, all of the terrible catastrophes and the awful things that would happen because of the judges that he would appoint. And I was kind of like, this it was scary stuff. And I'm so I read through that and I thought, well, that's, that's pretty interesting. I don't think I could vote yet. But, but uh, I was talking to my father a little while later and I said, so I, I read this stuff and it turns out like this one candidate, you know, maybe that'd be kind of scary because of the judges he would appoint. And my dad, um, you know, who he would never, ever reveal who he voted for. You could kind of tell, but he would never tell you straight up. But he said, uh, yeah, actually, that was the thing that's making me think I, I, I need to vote the other way. And it was one of those experiences that, you know, as a, as a kid, it kind of strikes you. Because here's your dad, and you respect him, and he, he tells you, you've read something, and he tells you, you know, I'm kind of thinking, actually, it's just the opposite. And you, you realize that, you know, there's not just lies like, uh, no, I didn't take a cookie out of the cookie jar. There's, there's much bigger lies in that, that sometimes people just have different ideas, but sometimes people flat out lie. Sometimes people distort things. 
So much so that up becomes down and down becomes up, that good is called evil and evil is called good. In our journey through 1 Timothy, Paul kind of started off there. He, he reminded Timothy that not everyone teaches truth, and he began to kind of open the door to Timothy's responsibilities to face that challenge and what he would need to do. And then you'll know, as we've been for the past few weeks, he begins talking, Paul does, about uh, giving some instructions then for how the, how the church should, uh, should be run and so forth. And he's had instructions for men and women and, and elders and deacons last week. And we come to our passage today, and he says this. Although, maybe he says this. I think my bottle's in the way. There it is. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. That's all the stuff we've just covered in the past few weeks. He says, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. What an amazing thing to say about the church. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. I don't think you'll find that on the front page of your newspaper. You're not going to find that on the 6 o'clock news. Here's the place you want to go for truth, but here is God's word. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. There's a a survey running around. I really haven't paid much attention to it, but I've kind of seen some headlines online recently about survey. You know, if if Jesus came back tomorrow, would he be pleased with the church? And I don't know, something like 87% or 97%. uh, Supposedly, 90% of people are saying, no, he wouldn't. He'd be really mad, right, with the church if he came back tomorrow. Now, here's a couple things that are true about the church. First of all, Sometimes, absolutely, churches do some dumb stuff. We can be pretty boneheaded, and and it's true. We do some stupid stuff, we make mistakes, we bumble around, we don't always represent ourselves very well, many times we don't represent our God very well, and, and sometimes we need correction. And of course, Revelation, the first few chapters, tell us that Jesus is certainly not above correcting a church even disciplining a church. He's willing to do it, and he does it if he needs to. But here's another true thing about the church. The church that Christ sees is stunningly beautiful to him. It's as beautiful as a bride to him. It's the church that he died for. He cherishes and loves his church. It's true that the church is at the core of God's very strategy to change this world. If you want to know what the most important things are that are happening in the world, again, you'll find very little of it in the news. It's when the church speaks the truth of the gospel in the world, it is the most important thing happening on this very day, and any day. It is, as Paul says, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is an amazing thing. I'm not speaking of gateway per se, but of Christ's church, his people. And hopefully we represent that well. Now the truth that the church possesses is himself Christ. Paul goes on. He says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. So he says, here's the church, here's the the truth that the church has. And then he begins speaking about a person. (laughs) 
It's Christ. The truth that we have, the truths that that are most important are the truths about Christ himself. His death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, the gospel. These are the core, the essential, the truths that are the foundation of life and of anything important in life begins there. And the church is a custodian of that. Now, we're going to just skip over this verse, and and yet there's so much there, but I would just encourage you to come back. Thursday night before Easter, we'll have a a time around the Lord's table of communion. We're going to come back to this verse, and, and this will be kind of our guide through that evening. So mark your calendars, whatever that Thursday is before Easter. See, back up from the 20th. I don't know. You can figure it out. Um, and, and come back here, 7 o'clock, and we will celebrate the Lord's Supper prior to Easter. Great prep, and we'll be looking at this verse in more detail. But there's the, there's the essential truths about Jesus are the, are the truths that the church holds, and we're custodians of that. Now, as we turn to chapter 4 in 1 Timothy, there's a little word that in most of your translations probably isn't, well, it's not always translated. Sometimes it's just kind of left out. It's a little conjunction right there at the beginning. It's best translated probably, and yet. So we have what came before, that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. We have the truth of Christ, and yet, we find in verse 1, and yet, amazingly, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some people will abandon the faith. Now, that's a big-time warning. The faith, that's the core truths, the very things he's just listed in that little hymn there about Christ's uh, resurrection, his death and resurrection and ascension. Uh, The gospel, despite having the most essential truth in life, some will actually abandon that. They will move away from that. He says that that will happen in the latter times. Now, sometimes that can refer to it uh, still, you know, the very end times. Probably this is just referring to the church age, that, that in the time between Christ's uh, death and resurrection and returning to heaven and his coming back again, the church age, there will be this repetitive pattern where the gospel goes out and advances and people grab hold of that, and yet at the same time, some people will begin to abandon that. And we go through these cycles. And so here's this warning. Despite having truth, some will abandon those truths. And he says that the the Spirit has clearly said that. Probably referring not to Paul going, hey, I heard this one really clear, you know, the Holy Spirit was extra clear. But more just that he's been repeating this message. In fact, Jesus basically uh, was one of the first, the, the prophets even say it, but, but Jesus says it very clearly. He says, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. So now this is the Messiah, the King of Israel, speaking, saying, hey, you should be ready for more people to come after me, saying, actually, I'm the Messiah. He, he predicted that people would come attempting to deceive. And Paul had given actually the same people in Ephesus a warning as well when he had left them. He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Be on your guard. Notice that that deception will come by a distortion of the truth. 
which means the most essential and the core truths will be the target. Because if that could be distorted, then we'll really be drawn off track. The question, of course, for us is, is could you fall for some of that deception? Is he, is he talking about you? Might, might you abandon the faith? Might someone close to you, someone that you love, abandon these core truths? That's the thing we want to be careful and think about. So tonight with the rest of this passage, we're going to think about some of the things we need to be aware of with the really big lies. The, the, the really, really important lies that are out there in the world have to do with distorting the truth of the gospel. And you need to be on your guard. Here's the first thing that, that uh, you could know about that, and that is that the source is supernatural. Now, if that sounds a little scary and ominous, that's good. That's what I was going for. The source uh, of this is supernatural. Now, uh, sometimes conspiracies are kind of interesting to me. There's some things going on in the world right now that are mysteries, and, you know, you just would love to know the truth. But, but in the end, I pretty much, I, I'm not a big conspiracy person. I kind of go with the, with the logical thing. I mean, I'll just tell you, I don't really want to hear, you know, if you think differently, I'm sorry, but, you know, I really, I think Lee Harvey Oswald shot Kennedy. I think that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. He may never have even been in his TV studio. You know, I, I, I don't really care about Bigfoot until he starts camping in my backyard, not, not terribly interested, you know, that's all going on, that's fine, and it's kind of fun, it's kind of interesting, but I will say there is a conspiracy you need to be aware of, of any conspiracy, I mean, you can worry about governments and spies and all that kind of stuff, but you, I, I, you need to know that there is a conspiracy. Look who's behind the big lie. How is it that people would abandon, having had the truth of the gospel, how could po- anyone possibly abandon that? Well, by being deceived. Following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now, demons are uh, uh, angels, basically, created by God. They, they, they had a chance to be holy, but they rebelled, apparently, with Satan when he rebelled against God. And so they kind of followed Satan, and now they serve in his kingdom, if you will, his authority structure, and they're all subservient to him. And here's the thing, one, one thing you absolutely can know with certainty about demons. They love to lie. They absolutely love to lie. It's a part of their nature because their master is the father of lies. Jesus talking about Satan says when he lies, he speaks his native language. It's just, it's what he does. He is a liar and he's the father of lies. Absolutely the father of lies. So, you know, really what Satan goes out to do is he wants to create doubt in your minds about God. And we'll think about that a little more in a few minutes. But he likes to create doubt. Now, you notice when, when you doubt something, you don't just leave it as a void. Your mind likes to fill things in. Like, nobody says, uh, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't think this uh, chair is brown. Right? You would say, I, I think it's reddish brown. Right? Or, I don't think this carpet's yellow. I think it's gold. You don't just say, I think something isn't. Your mind immediately fills it in, Right? So Satan loves to create doubt, and then there's a vacuum, and something needs to come in there, and what comes in from him is a deception. 
the lies move into that vacuum. There is a conspiracy afoot. Satan is behind that. Now, 1 Peter chapter 5 gives us a, a little help here. He says, be alert and, and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So in case you thought this was a conspiracy for third world countries or people outside the church or somewhere in another town or big cities, or, no. He would be happy he would be happy to have you two to devour you. He's, it, it's personal, this thing that Satan's after. It's personal. He would love to have you. Now, notice you need a couple things to fight that. First of all is to be alert and sober-minded. That is that your intelligence and your willpower and your reasoning skills and your, your spiritual sensitivity, those are all helpful things, and you're going to need to use them to, to put off his deceptions and his lies, but you need something else. You cannot do it on your own. It's a supernatural battle. You're going to need something supernatural. And that's where Peter says, resist him standing firm in the faith. There it is again, the truths of the gospel. The more essential the truth is about Christ, the most important things about him, those are the most powerful things with which you fight off Satan or or, or demons or lies or deception from whatever its source. And, And you absolutely need Something supernatural to fight a supernatural battle. And that's what the gospel is. That's what God's truth is. So there's the first thing. The source is supernatural. And then the next thing we should know about uh, the big lies is that they actually sound natural. 1 Timothy 4.2, he says, Such teachings, these teachings that have deceived people to abandoning the gospel... These teachings have actually come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So, in other words, this is not some kind of sci-fi horror movie, you know, where, where you're having Satan show up in your face and he's, you know, telling you things. Most of this stuff comes through people, you know. This, this comes through teachers. It, it comes through pastors, comes through writers, writers of books and music. It comes through talk show hosts. It comes through politicians and, and philosophers and neighbors and, and your crazy Uncle Larry. Sorry, not our Larry, but anyway, your crazy Uncle Larry. <laughs> it comes from a, a friend, someone at work, see? And it sounds so natural. Now, notice that he says that these, these people are, are hypocritical. Now, when I, when I first read that, I think, okay, so now if this is going to come at me from some hypocritical liar, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be like, well, why should I believe that hypocrite, right? And that is, it is true that when we perceive hypocrisy, we're like, whoa, what are you doing? What are you saying? And, and we are pretty resistant to what someone says. But what if you don't catch on? You see, and this is the point of hypocrisy. It's to put out something that might fool someone. And so if he fools you, you're fooled, right? This is the point of hypocrisy. And then it becomes persuasive. See, and the big lies, the really important lies about Christ, about God, about his character, uh, about um, 
the, the, the core truths of the Bible, they will most often sound reasonable. They will sound scientific. They will sound like common knowledge. They will be held up as, as widely held that the majority of people believe this, that this is popular, that this might even sound positive, even sweet or loving or accepting. The big lies, you see, start somewhere supernatural, but they're going to sound among the most natural things you will ever hear. And it comes, these people also have a seared conscience. Now, there's a couple ideas of what that might mean. One would be that uh, these individuals are really in a bad shape. (laughs) These are really bad liars. They're good liars, but they're bad because of it. That they have been uh, seared as in like branded, like a cattle brand marked Satan. They belong to Satan. They're doing his bidding. Pretty gruesome thought. Probably more likely it means that their, their moral conscience, their, their discerning of right and wrong is sort of numb. Uh, you know, you might, some of you remember I cut up my fingers when I fell off my roof. Anyway, I still have some numb fingers, you know, so I can touch things and, and not know it. And some of you have injuries like that too. Well, their, their conscience doesn't even know it. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm telling them lies, but they don't feel bad about that, right? And in fact, they might feel good about it. It's interesting how the, the really big lies sound so natural, and, and the important thing is that we understand that we're not deceived. It's also ironic that the teaching of the gospel, while sometimes those who teach it can be hypocrites, it, it, it's so unfortunate because the gospel is actually something that anyone can teach. Paul said he was chief among sinners, and he could teach the gospel. See, because embedded within the gospel is the fix, the problem for hypocrisy, right? So anyone could teach it. Ah, side note. So anyway, there's the second thing. The big lies, they they start supernatural, but they sound natural. And here's one more thing, and that would be that really they're about your view of God. We think that when, when uh, if Satan's after people, he'd love, you know, he's trying to get them to sin. And, and that's true, but I think it's really something way more fundamental. It's about your view and your understanding, your perception or your belief of who God is. That's really what he's after. It's more fundamental. Now, Paul gives us a couple examples of things that were happening in Ephesus. There are some people there, there are some of their hypocritical liars whose consciences were seared. They were saying, I forbid people to marry, and I order uh, them to abstain from certain foods. This is what Paul says they've taught. Now, now Paul says that, that God created, actually, those things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. So here's the the couple examples. Now, first of all, understand he just gives sort of the bottom line, a couple examples of the the teaching. They're forbidding people to marry, and they're forbidding certain kinds of food. But there was more to it than that. He doesn't give their whole teaching, but there was a rationale for that. There was a, a point of view, a perspective, or a philosophy that supported that application that they were teaching. He doesn't give it to us, so we kind of have to guess, but it sure looks like it's some form of asceticism or early Gnosticism, which basically believed in a kind of dualistic approach to the world, that everything that was physical, 
is evil, and everything that's spiritual is good, right? So if you can touch it, right, or if your natural body craves it, then that's evil, right? This was probably the philosophy, the viewpoint behind it. And behind that, I think, is there, there is a question about the true and living God. Those questions might have been something like, is God really even creator? I mean, because he only, he only approves of the spiritual stuff, so he probably created that. But this physical stuff, it's flawed, it's evil. So he wouldn't have anything to do with that. Is he even really the creator of this stuff? They might have said. Or is he really present in this world? We don't think he's present in this world. How could he be here? This is evil stuff. Your flesh is evil stuff. See, so there are all these, there's this philosophy, and there's this questioning of God, even behind that. Now, here's Paul's rebuttal. The next, uh, next verse. For everything God, is crea- God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is constantly, consecrated by the... I'm trying to talk as fast as Bob. I can't do it. Ah. Okay, back to my dreamy ways. Because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. There we go. See, I can do that. All right, don't tell him about that. So here, Paul straightens it out, and he says, listen... That's not true. Here's the ultimate truth. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of all of it. The the spiritual universe and the physical universe. He is God. He is Lord over all of it. And the biblical perspective of the natural world is that it was created, what did God say? Good. This is good. And it remains good when it's used properly. This is not an evil podium. It's all about how it's used, right? Hopefully, this is a blessed podium. That's what I'm counting on. So the natural world is good if we use it properly. So he gives these instructions. Here's how to use, and and he's kind of just bypassed the whole marriage thing, and he focuses on food. He says, you know, food's good if you use it properly. Now, he could go on and say, if you use it improperly, for instance, gluttony, oh, that would be bad. There's a, there's a poor use of the natural world. But if you use the natural world properly, which would be using the word of God to understand what God has said is okay to eat, and in prayer, which means it's about relating to God, thanking him for this food. This, this meal is about even being in a relationship with a God who's provided for me. Then that is a good meal. That's good stuff. So he totally like debunks this whole teaching that's going on. But notice within here a really predictable pattern, because I think that this is kind of Satan's... This is the way he operates. This is the way he operates. There's a, there's a pattern that I think that we can see here. Notice, Satan, I don't think he, he really tends to walk up to people and say, hey, hate your neighbor, you know? Well, hey, why don't you use this drug? Drink too much of this. Sleep with someone else's wife. You know, murder that guy. Just go murder him. You know, get up right now. Kill him. You know, it's like we would be like, what? You know, like, no. It's not what he does. Remember a, a few weeks ago, Pastor Bob took us back to Genesis for, for some of the background theology of First Timothy. Here we are kind of again. Remember in that story, 
What does Satan first say to Eve? Did God say? Did God say? He just tries to get her thinking. His first step is to create doubt. Create doubt. Why don't you just, you know, maybe you should ask God a few questions here. Is that so unreasonable? Just ask God a a couple questions, really. And so she begins thinking. She begins doubting. She begins questioning. And again, when there's doubt, what do we do? We fill it in with something. And there's Satan to fill it in with a a distortion. And so now, because she has doubted God, he's there to feed this distortion. And what is her new perspective, her new worldview about the, about the forbidden fruit? Is that God may be true, but you know what? What he said may be true, but it's also you know, pleasing to the eye. It's good for food, right? And it's helpful for gaining wisdom. Because he said, I'll be wise like God. Wait, who said? (laughs) Who said you'd be wise like God? And so she has this new, sorry, she has this new uh, perspective that is, is distorted, and it got its start by questioning and doubting God. And now what's ready, you know, now it's just like, it's all, it's a done deal, right? She totally has this perspective which is going to propel her and motivate her and authorize her and bless her to move away from God and do something that he said she shouldn't do. And there's the sin. And there's the sin that we thought maybe Satan, you know, I'm not hearing from him because he hasn't told me to murder anyone. (laughs) But he starts somewhere else. He starts way back at questioning God. See, I think for Satan, once you doubt God, any sin will do. You know, whatever you pick's fine. It's like, just question God a little bit. Wouldn't it be okay to, to be a philosopher for a little while and, and, you know, ask some of the hard questions in the world? Go ahead, take God to task and ask him the hard questions. Put a little doubt in there. You'll be more intelligent. <laughs> You'll be wiser if you challenge him with your, with your fabulous brain. And Satan's like, yeah, just go down that path. After that, anything, anything's fine. You know, I'll, fill that, I'll fill in the gaps, and then whatever sin you pick, you could hate your neighbor, or you could sleep with his wife. I don't care. You know, either way is fine with me. You just, you just pick at that point. Really, really doesn't matter. Now, Here's the really, really sad thing to me. Things go wrong in the world. Things go wrong in our lives. And we suffer or we're in pain. And we question and we doubt and we accuse God. Is is that backwards or what? I mean, isn't it about time someone starts questioning Satan? Like, hey, what do you think you're doing messing up with my, messing my family up? What are you doing feeding these people? What are you doing causing these murders and this destruction? You are a liar. And, and, and God will call you to account. 
I don't have to question God. He is the God of truth. You're a liar. Why should I have to like, oh, sweat like it's some big intellectual problem that there's evil in the world? It's your fault that there's evil in the world. Yes, we participated, and there is a consequence for that, but this is your fault. Stop accusing God and telling me to accuse God that there's a problem with evil in the world. It's your fault, Satan. But no, we always question God. And the world sucks us into it so fast. Like it's a big philosophical problem that God can't quite get himself out of. That there's evil. Satan, that is your fault. We know where it came from, and you're the father of lies. Now, he would love to have us doubt really anything about God. But uh, here's a couple verses that give us a great summary. You could boil it down to a couple things. Here's, here's two of the things that I see more often than anything else. Psalmist says, one thing God has spoken, two things I've heard. Listen, this is awesome. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. Now, here's two basic things about God. Let me tell you, put this into your heart and your mind so that nothing, no event, no person, no spirit could ever convince you otherwise. God is powerful and God is loving. Okay? This is the theology of God, and it is absolutely beyond our thinking, and yet it is so simple, you can put it into two things, and Miss Susan teaches it to our preschoolers, who are more wise than the philosophers of the world because they know and they understand that God is powerful and God is loving. I lost track. Okay, so powerful. That means he's able to take care of me. Loving means he's willing to take care of me. But if I start to doubt one of those, what happens? Well, we doubt God is, is you know, I doubt God is willing to give me what I need. And I begin to want and deserve to have what I think I need, right? So now that's my perspective. And I've already doubted God. Maybe he won't want to. Maybe he doesn't love me in the right way. And so now I'm just primed to pursue something that's unwise or inappropriate. Or we doubt God can protect us. Maybe he's not powerful. Maybe he's not there. Maybe he's not as big as he said he was. And, we, and so we, we wear this perspective that I've got to be the one that protects myself. I'm responsible for everything around me. And so... I must have to do whatever that takes. I'll seek revenge. I can hoard things. I can cheat on my taxes. I can do whatever it takes to protect my life because God may not do it. I'm not sure. I doubt a little bit. See, but there it is. God is loving and God is powerful. Work that into your life. And then notice how he mentions this extra thing. God rewards everyone according to what they have done. What, is, what does that mean? Well, that's a funny thing to connect to it. Have you ever wondered about how it is that uh, with the cross and the gospel, we say that uh, it really has nothing to do with you? 
It's, it's, Christ accomplishes, and we sang about it tonight, he accomplishes everything necessary for you to be accepted and loved by God. That's the gospel. And you weren't worthy of that, and you can't do anything to become worthy of that. And even after you accept it and you're his child, you can't do anything to add on to that, right? And yet at the same time, the Bible talks about uh, rewarding people based on what they've done. What's the point? I can't add on. That doesn't make sense. It sounds a little inconsistent. Maybe that's bothered you. But I love that it's attached to who God is. Let me give you this little example. Two people, and uh, they, each, they each decide they're going to give uh, $100 to the poor. Right? So, two men. They each give $100 to the poor. So they did the same thing, right? Maybe, maybe not. See, because one of them gave $100 to the poor, fearing that they were not acceptable to God, that they were unlovable, that they felt bad about what they had done, and they hoped that God would see that and maybe embrace them because they did something good. Maybe they, uh, maybe they did it because they find that they feel better about themselves when they do that. Because they go and they, they do these things that make them feel terrible about themselves, but at least when they give the $100 to the poor, they feel a little better about themselves. Or they're just trying to buy some karma or something, you know? Okay? Now, this person over here gave $100 to, to the poor because they believe that God is generous. And God was so generous to them, they're pursuing a life of generosity themselves. And this is what they believe. So did they do the same thing? Oh, only outwardly. What they did was based on what they believed. And it is the whole package that God is talking about here. And so one person believes, and you must believe, that God is both powerful and loving. And you must hold to those important truths of the gospel. Satan wants to create doubt in your view of God. Now tonight we're going to uh, close with uh, communion and, and while we kind of finish up this last point, uh, we're going to serve you and so hopefully you can pass that along and also listen at the same time. Here's the last thing about uh, what you need to know about the big lies and that is that the antidote is godliness. Verses 6 and 8, if you, through 8, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, go ahead and start serving. You'll be a, a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. He goes on. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and life to come. So here is the anecdote. It, ante, not anecdote. The antidote is godliness. Now, godliness is not uh, perfection. It's not really even holiness as we think of, of holiness. It's not certainly a, a snobby kind of spiritualism. Godliness actually is a measurement of your devotion. So in the Bible, a very godly person isn't a person like doing everything well. It's a person who's highly devoted to God, 
who values God above other things. And so this is what Paul is talking about. It's what you focus on. It's what you value. Uh, One of my good friends in uh, college days, we were talking about, this is back in Bible college, we were talking about what time were our best hours to study. And uh, and, um, my friend Gary said... uh, yeah, it's, it's late afternoon. Uh, like, right after classes, like, between then and dinner time is the very best time for me to study. And then he said, and so that's why now I just, I try and use most of that for prayer and for worship. Because it was my best time. It's like, wow. That's godliness. See, that's devotion. That's a high level of do- devotion. Finding what's best and figuring out a way to give that to God. What an, what an awesome thing. Now, notice here that he gives us a, a, a few uh, hints in this second part about what to focus on. He kind of gives us three levels. The first is myths and tales. These are things that are they're untrue. Uh, you know, old wives' tales. Things that are fiction and useless. And so here's his kind of formula. No value, no attention. Right? This is stuff that's just, it's lies, it's fluff, it really has no value, so it really gets none of my time. Any of you feeling like you're going to just live a really long time and you're probably going to run out of, of, you know, things to do in life and you're not, you know, you're going to run out of books to read and really good things, you know, and ministries to, yeah, no, see, you, you don't have enough time for anything that has no value. Paul's like, eh. No, none. No, no devotion to myths and wives' tales. Then he says physical training. Now, that's stuff that will appropriately benefit your life, but it benefits your physical life. And he's like, that has some value. So you could give that some attention. Now, how many things relate to just your physical life? I don't know. You're going to have to figure those out. But, you know, he's like, well, some value, some attention. But he says... What has the greatest value in your life? Oh, godliness. A a, a focus on the things of God, on the very most important things of God, on the gospel itself, on the Lord Jesus Christ, on his death, on his resurrection, on his ascension to heaven, on the preaching of the gospel in the world. Devote yourselves to these things because they have value now and for eternity in your experience with God in heaven. There's his little prescription for what you figure out, what to focus on. Now, I want to take us back here as, uh, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, back to that verse, verse 16 in chapter 3. Read it again. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Who is the mystery? It is Christ himself. And your godliness, your, your attention span to the gospel, your, your focus on God, how, how great that is, is kind of a mystery because it comes through a person and he captivates us and he helps us grow and he awakens, our, you know, uh, awakens us to, to amazing things, the amazing things of God and, and what life in his kingdom is like. To, it's a, it's a mystery that's, that's just amazing. But it still comes back to Christ. I'm going to give you just a moment.
to pray and to focus your life on those important, important things of the Lord Jesus.